The night that All in the Family debuted on television, I was six years old. It must have been a holiday of some kind because we had a bunch of people over to the house, including my Aunt Evelyn and her close personal friend Ava. Ava was a young woman from Germany. I always thought she was pretty nice. I liked her musical accent and hearing her stories. We were having dinner and my godfather, Don, asked what time it was. He said he wanted to make sure he didn't miss the debut of this new show, All in the Family. He said he'd heard it was supposed to be really hilarious and off-color. He excused himself from the table and went into the TV room. I followed because I wanted to see the funny show too. He turned the TV on and put his feet up on the ottoman, really settling in to enjoy himself. He had a drink in his hand, though he since quit because the doctor told him his liver was going to explode, and a smoke between his fingers, though he since quit since they had to take out one of his lungs. The show began with Edith and Archie singing and all that. Ava suddenly walked into the room. She changed the channel, pulled the ottoman out from under Don's feet, sat down on the other couch, and stuck the ottoman under her own feet. Hey, what are you doing? asked Don. I don't want to watch this stupid show, said Ava. Well, I do. Now turn it back on, you Nazi cunt. I'd never heard either one of those words before, but I knew they were heavies. Ava got up abruptly, looking at Don like he was the devil incarnate, which he is, that's why I like him, and made Evelyn drive her home. Everybody thought it was pretty funny, even my mom, although she pretended to be mad at Don. Don was always doing things like that. He still does. He's 75 now and as full of piss and vinegar as ever. He got email recently and he sends me filthy jokes every day. God bless him. One time, Don went into Save-On Drugstore to buy a pack of cigarettes. He was stuck in line behind some old lady who insisted on showing the cashier pictures of her grandchildren. Don got so tired of waiting, he opened up a pack of cigarettes and lit one. The cashier said, Sir, you can't smoke in the store. And Don said, Well, if she'd get the fuck out of my way, I could smoke it in the parking lot. He was banned from Savon for life. Another time he showed up at his local breakfast spot and ordered the breakfast special. The waitress told him that they'd stop serving breakfast at 11.30. Don looked up at the clock in the diner and it said 11.20. He pointed out that it was only 11.20. And the waitress said she knew that, but the cook started cleaning the grills off at 11.20. So Don told her he thought that was pretty stupid and once again asked for breakfast. The waitress got mad and told him he couldn't have breakfast and why didn't he order lunch and keep his mouth shut? Don said he didn't want lunch, he wanted breakfast, and why the fuck did they advertise breakfast until 11.30 if they were only going to serve breakfast until 11.20? The waitress told him to get out, so Don picked up a coffee cup and threw it against the clock on the wall and stormed out. He was banned from the Old Town Cafe for life, too. Speaking of the Nazi cunt Ava, I remember the day that Nixon resigned. I was in Mexico with my aunt, my mom, her friend Peggy, Peggy's daughter Florence, my sister Barb, and this German woman Ava. I was the only boy. We were listening to all the goings-on on the radio. Everyone was rapt, being that it was such a big to-do. We were all in the kitchen of this house we had rented. It was up on a cliff, I remember, and it overlooked the beach and brilliant blue water. I remember the sun being insanely bright. I was bored, sitting on a bar stool. All the women were gathered around wearing swimsuits. Ava had on a bikini. She was in her mid-thirties then and pretty damn happening. I looked at her breasts, beautiful and full, pushed up and pouting in this bikini top. I became transfixed on them. I began to have the first sexual feelings that I can recall. I got a stiffy and just sat there staring. She suddenly said in her thick accent, Jimmy, what are you staring at? 
I turned so red I was purple. I got up and ran out of the room with my boner poking straight out of my shorts like a pup tent. All the women started laughing when they realized what was going on. I headed for the bathroom, the only place I could be alone for a minute and straighten out my thoughts. I threw the door open, and there was Peggy's daughter Florence, who was about 14 and gorgeous, quickly pulling up her shorts yelling, Hey, I'm in here! Her pubic hair was poking over the top of her shorts as she pulled them up. I said sorry and ran for the back door. I sat outside on this hot white wall looking at the ocean, totally confused by what had happened so fast to me. It was a big day. The first time I ever mowed a lawn in my life, I was 28 years old. Every kid I knew growing up had to mow the lawn on the weekend. Not me. No, sir. My dad's been a landscaper and gardener his whole life. It's his hobby, his talent, his passion. So I was never allowed anywhere near the yard growing up. Hey, Dad, you need any help out in the yard? No, don't come out here. I'm sure Scooby-Doo's on or something. Just stay in there. After I moved out of the house, I always lived in apartments or houses with existing yard care in the rental agreement. Then I moved up here to Oregon. I was off the hook in our first apartment over in Northwest. No yard. Then we moved to the little pink house over off Highway 26, where there was an acre to mow. Our landlord told us that part of the deal was that we had to keep the grass cut. A frigging acre of lawn in Portland with a cheap, half-busted lawnmower that sounded like a squirrel with cystic fibrosis when you tried to fire it up. It conked out every five feet when the grass was wet, which was always, of course, a miserable time. So I never did any yard work growing up, which was fine with me, because I don't get it anyway. I don't like this outside they speak of. All my stuff's in the house. Why on earth would I want to go outdoors and put water on stuff? You know what happens when you do that, don't you? Stuff grows if you do that. Then what happens? Then you gotta cut stuff back and tend to weeds. Good God, it never ends. You know how much time in your life that eats up? What are you, crazy? Take my advice and get some household bleach, go outside and pour it all over anything that even looks like it might think about growing, and call it good. Huh? What's that you say? You like to work in the yard. Oh, okay, that's cool. Knock yourself out. My mom handled all the stuff around the house, the cooking, cleaning, laundry, so I didn't do any of that either. I wasn't even ever asked to do it. At some point, though, I started feeling like I needed to pitch in some. That's when I started doing the dishes. I don't recall how it started, but pretty soon the dishes became my job around the house. I did all the dishes, all the time, even Thanksgiving. And I got real good at it, too. I took pride in my dishes. I got those dishes so clean you could... Well, they were really clean. I guess it was only natural, given these incredible abilities, that I put them to good use out there as a viable member of the workforce. So, I got a job in high school as a dishwasher. I was 15, so I lied about my age, the first of two lies I'd tell my boss, and I got a job at a Chinese restaurant called Imperial Jade. It was run by a lovely couple called Mr. and Mrs. Chun. They were very nice. They spoke very little English. We got along just fine. I showed up for my first day of work. It was incredibly dark in the restaurant coming in from the harsh L.A. sunlight. 
The first thing I saw when my eyes got adjusted to the light was this incredible girl standing at the till. A tall, blonde, blue-eyed, slamming California beach babe. She was the hostess of the restaurant. Thank you, God. I introduced myself and headed back to the kitchen. A side note, that hostess, whose name I can't remember for the life of me, became the single biggest turn-on of my adolescence. I rarely spoke to her, never had any kind of meaningful dialogue with her, but that was of no importance. She became my 38 special fantasy girl. In my young mind, she was going to be mine. It was just a matter of my being patient. The time would present itself eventually, and she'd see what a funny, talented, sensitive guy I was, and she'd melt in my arms like chocolate in the sun. Yep. She, a recent high school graduate who could date anyone she wanted, and I, an overweight, long-haired, zitty dishwasher, were going to skip merrily on down the lane someday. Just a matter of time. Hey, you'll never guess what either. Didn't happen. So there I was that first day, walking into the kitchen when I heard, Jim, Jim. I turned around and there was Mr. Chun. Come with me, Jim, he said. A cigarette dangled from the corner of his mouth, making him look like an old-time gangster. I followed Mr. Chun into the main dining room and then to a door that led to a second larger banquet room. Oh, Jim, big banquet tonight, he said, waving his thin arms in the air. He looked very concerned and, and somewhat alarmed. Banquet tonight? I said. Yes, Jim, big banquet tonight. Everybody come. Many, many people. Food all night long. Many dish. Oh, get ready. Wow, really? I said. Mr. Chun paused. No, i just kidding, he said. Banquet tonight. Ha, 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 ha. And he walked back into the kitchen. That guy ruled. Dishwashing in a restaurant is pretty much like any other unpleasant task in life. You get used to it after a while. I'd rinse off the plates and silverware and load them into a big industrial dishwasher. They'd get washed, and then I'd send them down the conveyor belt to the dryer. When they were dry, I'd stick them back with the clean dishes. That was the job. When there was downtime, I had one other task to do. I helped the sous chef peel and chop onions. Big old 25-pound sacks of them. The sous chef was a Mexican guy who spoke no English. He wore a hairnet and had a big gold front tooth. I worked with him for over two years. We never asked each other's names, swore to God. He smoked Marlboro Reds, so I took to calling him Red Pack. I was a tubby bitch, so he called me Gordo. Hey, amigo, muy gordo, ha ha ha. All through high school, the flesh on my palms was torn and raw from all the bleach and soap. When I cut onions, the juice would run onto my tender skin and I'd get woozy from the pain, like a hundred little paper cuts. I didn't complain. I just did it. But my hands never completely healed till I was 21. Mrs. Chun didn't say much. I do remember her wandering with her hands behind her back, muttering, No people, no money. No money, no people. It was a circular philosophy. She would also come into the kitchen and say, Oh, not a day, not a penny. She was the worrier of the family. The Chuns had a little boy named Willie, who was a, an annoying little spaz. He'd run around the kitchen playing with his cars and toy planes, knocking into stuff and hollering. I grew to hate children. It's never really left me. And it's all Willie's fault. One night it was kind of slow and Mr. Chun walked into the kitchen. Jim, you know how many go? He asked me. Huh? I said. How many go? He asked again. I don't understand. I'm sorry, I said. 
Out of his front shirt pocket, he produced a harmonica. Oh, a harmonica, I said. Yes, yes, harmonigi. And with that, he pulled a cigarette out of his mouth, put the harmonica to his lips, and began to play a merry little tune. He was good, too. He was playing something that sounded like Oh Susanna or something close to it. I just stood there listening. Mrs. Chun and Willie Chun came running into the kitchen. They began clapping and dancing together, all smiles. It was a very happy moment. Then Mr. Chun finished his song. He put the harmonica back in his shirt pocket, stuck the cigarette back between his lips, looked at me and said, Okay, dish. The three of them walked out. I went back to the dishes. A couple months after I started work there, I arrived for work and there was Mr. Chun standing by the front door. Jim, Jim, hurry, come in, a banquet tonight, banquet tonight, dish, dish. His eyes were huge. Wow, really, I said, putting on my apron. No, I'm just kidding again, he said, walking away. No banquet tonight, never banquet. You had to love that guy. Christmas Eve that year, the place was swamped, who knows why. All I knew was I was buried in pans, cups, teapots, serving trays, etc. I must have washed every dish in that joint five times over that night. It just went on and on. About 10 p.m., the traffic began to slow down a bit. I had just sort of gotten a handle on the remainder of the dishes, about four big plastic bins full, when Mr. and Mrs. Chun came into the kitchen. Jim, you good worker. You work hard tonight. You go home early. Oh, well, thanks, you guys, I said. Let me just finish up the rest of these bins. No, Jim, it okay. You go home. We finish these up. Merry Christmas. You go home. Bye-bye. The restaurant was closed for a week for the holidays. I came back to work on January 3rd. Walking into the kitchen, the smell hit me immediately. The bins full of dirty dishes were still there. Red cloth napkins had been placed over the bins so I couldn't see inside. I pulled the first napkin back like a magician doing the big reveal. Voila! It was full of rotten food teeming with maggots. Though I could go on and on with much fouler descriptions of how disgusting this was, I think you get the general idea. Absolutely one of the two foulest things I've ever experienced. The other foulest thing was very recent. Two girls, one cup. Enough said. Anyway, the Chuns obviously didn't do the dishes before they left. Hey, thanks, guys. I brought Mrs. Chun back to the kitchen to show her the miracle of new life growing there in the bins. Ooh, worms! Yick, she said, holding her nose, and she walked away. Oh, and by the way, you'll never guess who cleaned it up. Life went on there at The Jade, as I'd taken to calling it. The Chuns, my fantasy hostess, Red Pack, and I worked together day after day and through my high school years. I was there for a few months after I graduated. Then one day, something inside me said, You're all through here, Jim. And I walked into Mr. Chun and quit. Right then, that day that moment. That's been a pattern in my life with jobs. I'll work somewhere, sometimes for years. Everybody likes me okay. I don't mind the work too much. Pay's not too bad. Don't even mind the boss much. Then one day, I just say, enough, and tell the employer I'm leaving, right that minute. You can imagine how thrilled the boss is to hear that one. Not a lot of references on my resumes. But Mr. Chun, he was okay with it. He seemed to understand completely when I told the second lie to him, the one about my grandmother being very sick lately and I needed to find a higher-paying job so I could really do my part helping out the family. Geez, what a load that was. I tried not to lay it on too thick. Mr. Chun told me he hated to see me go, 
and that I'd been a very good worker, maybe he'd see me again. I was just about to leave when he said, Gene, you do me one favor? Sure, anything, I said. Many cardboard box need to throw away and recycle. Many box. You bring your tuck around and load up, okay? He said. I looked at the boxes. There were about 75 of them, flattened and tied. This was going to be a job that was somewhere between a bit of drudgery and a complete pain in the hindquarters. I went out to get my truck. Mrs. Chun followed me outside. She gave me my last paycheck. She told me I was a nice boy and a good worker and that they'd been happy with my work for the years I'd been there. I got in my truck and fired it up. Mrs. Chun stood at the window and thanked me again for all that I'd done for them. I thanked her for the job. I put the truck in drive, waved goodbye to Mrs. Chun, and began to pull out of the parking lot. I heard some kind of yelp behind me, and I looked in the rearview mirror to see Mr. Chun with a surprised look on his face. But the boxes! he hollered. He had his hands on both sides of his head and looked very much like that Edward Monk painting, The Scream. I pretended I didn't hear him and drove away. A week later, I realized I needed to get it together and get another job. I wanted something different, though, something that was a complete change from what I'd been doing for the last three years. So I walked across the street from the house and got a job washing dishes at the Japanese restaurant that was there. It was called Matsuya's. I lasted four days. I thought that Chinese place was a drag. No, this Japanese place, you had a sushi bar with all these ornate ceramic sushi trays that all had to be hand-washed because there were nooks and crannies and rice would get caught in the cracks and the dishes piled up and piled up and you could never get a handle on it and they just kept coming and coming and coming. On what should have been the fifth day of my Matsuya's job, my friend Dave called me up just as I was leaving the house and asked me if I wanted to go to the movies. I told him I couldn't, that I had to work. <laughs> just blow it off, he said. Blow it off. Yes. That's so logical. Blow it off. So we went to the movies. When I got home, there were several messages from Eddie Matsuya, the owner of the restaurant. He wanted to know where I was, obviously. On each message, his anger increased slightly. The last message in the series was simply, Gene Walker, you fire. You very irresponsible boy. I kept the message. I used to play it for friends, and oh, how we'd laugh. Tim and I play a version of Locomotive Breath by Jethro Tull. I don't know why. I've never been particularly fond of the song. Tim started singing it one night, and there you go. In the breaks between the guitar solos, we quote the big riff to Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. I don't know why. Then at the end of the song, we play the beginning of Roundabout by Yes in order to end Locomotive Breath. Why do we do that? I don't know. We just did it one night, and now we do it most every night. Pretty much like the rest of our show. So the other night, while we're playing this song for the umpteenth time, it occurred to me out of the blue what we were actually playing, and I started laughing at the absurdity of it. You know how things just strike you as funny sometimes, often at the most inopportune moments? It struck me funny because, like I said, I don't really like locomotive breath, but I really don't care for Jethro Tull. Great musicians, to be sure, but they were just a little too 
prancing about in tights playing the flute at the Renaissance Fair, for my taste. I like music about the devil and stuff, not hobbits and porridge. Not that they ever wrote one song about a hobbit or one song about porridge, but I just lumped them in, unfairly to be sure, with all that mid-70s Robin Hood crap. So I could just never get into the tall. It was just too funny to me. On the other hand, I was quite the Yes fan when I was growing up. I know, I know, like that's any better than the Renaissance Fair stuff, right? Ten times more stupid. Bombastic and pretentious. One silly song about a catru taking up a whole side of a record. Waterfalls and foggy cliffs. Cape-wearing Roger Dean fantasy album sleeves. Yes. Well, I thought it was kind of neat at the time. I'll fess up. I still like some of that stuff now. So there Tim and I are, back at the show, bashing away at this tall yes conglomeration when I flash back to the second concert I ever went to. The first one was Kiss at the L.A. Forum in sixth grade. Cheap trick opened. Hard to beat. But the second one was Yes at the L.A. Sports Arena. I was in seventh grade. They were touring in support of their album Tormato. You remember Tormato? You were probably playing it in the car this morning, weren't you? If you put a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you what songs were on it, though I'm sure I listened to it a hundred times back then. I went to the show with my friend Purvis. We were too young to drive, obviously, so we bought Purvis's sister and her boyfriend Don, who were both 17, tickets in exchange for a ride. We headed down to the show that night, Purvis and I in the back seat, the other two up front. Just as we got onto the Glendale Freeway, our designated driver Don produced a large green bong. After taking three or four deep hits himself, steering with his knees in the L.A. rush hour traffic, he passed the bong around the vehicle to the rest of us. It's Maui Wowie, Don informed us. As I was fingering the carb, Don opened a little ice chest and took out a bottle of Seagram 7. He then proceeded to mix it with an apple-flavored soda that no longer exists, called Aspen. Still stirring with his knees, he poured all of his cocktails. That was how you did it back then. I remember drinking three of these apples and scotch concoctions. I also remember taking 17 bong hits. 17. After that, things got a little hazy. I remember standing in the huge line to go into the show. Security people patted you down at shows like that. Maybe they still do. I remember feeling very happy and floaty. The California sun was a red fireball just dipping below the horizon. I swore I heard it sizzle as it slowly descended into the ocean. That's so bitchin', I said out loud. In front of me, I noticed a white bucket. For no particular reason, I began gently kicking it with my foot, scooting it along the sidewalk. In my state, I found this activity highly amusing. I was very happy and had scooted my cute little bucket a good hundred feet down the sidewalk when a strong hand closed around the meat of my right bicep. I turned to look who was grabbing me. LAPD. Yikes. What are you doing with that, you idiot? A bovine LA cop asked me, blowing my buzz. Well, I couldn't move my lips anymore. My tongue was asleep, and my mouth was paralyzed by the industrial-strength Hawaiian weed. So I tried to telepathically explain to the officer that I was merely entertaining myself with this bucket while waiting for the line to thin out. But he didn't hear me. He let go of my arm and picked up the bucket. I looked into it for the first time. It was the confiscated contraband receptacle. It was full of flasks, dime bags, switchblades, and coke vials. Oopsie. The pig cursed at me in slow motion, shook his finger in my face in slow motion, and waddled back to the line with the bucket in slow motion. 
I must have gotten inside to see the concert somehow, because the next thing I remember is the light show. Whoa, I said 700 times, slumped there in my seat. I was blotto. Then came the part where each player had a little solo section where they got to perform by themselves on stage. And I'll tell you, there's really nothing like a 10-minute bass solo by a dick in a shiny cape to make even the most hammered fan reflect on how they've just spent their hard-earned money. Perhaps I should have gone to see Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush, I found myself thinking. But then the guitar player, Steve Howe, came out for his solo bit. I was way into this guy's playing, so when he sat down and started playing his acoustic piece, The Clap, I was very excited and completely out of my fucking head. I yanked myself up out of my chair and raised my hands in the air and shrieked, A big guy behind me put his hands on my shoulders, pushed me back into my seat and screamed at me, Sit down, you fat ass. I landed hard in my seat. That's all I remember until I was dropped off at my house after the show. And we've all been there, trying to come into your house as quietly as possible when you're absolutely ripped out of your skull. You think you're doing a pretty good job, when in reality you sound like you're backing a dump truck through the living room. I got into my room, shut the door, and climbed into bed. Ha! Home free. I'd done it. I got into the house without waking up my pa- Footsteps. Oh, God. The footsteps came closer, then the bedroom door opened. I tried to pretend like I was sleeping. Honk, woo, honk, woo, I said, trying to approximate a snore. Mom turned the light on. Light can be a blade sometimes. Ow, I said, blinking and squinting. Well, how was the concert? Good, real good. Light's pretty. Dude, maintain. What's wrong with you, said Mom. What? Me? Nothing. I'm so sleepy. Are you drunk? Have you been drinking? Oh, no, 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 no. Yes, you have. You're drunk. No, 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 no. Well, you're either drunk or you're out of your mind on drugs. I'm drunk. Oh, my God, I'm getting your father. Oh, man, now I was D-E-A-D. The footsteps went back down the hall. I heard my mother muttering to my father. Then I heard my father say, What? Well, screw this. I wasn't going to stick around to see what was going to happen next. I opened my bedroom window, leapt five feet over the camellia bushes, and did an Adam-12 tuck roll out onto the dewy grass. I ran across the street and hid in the shadow of a tree. My folks came out and looked for me for a while, whisper calling my name up and down the street. I just sat by the tree. After a while, my dad said, Oh, the hell with him. He'll turn up. I gotta get some sleep. And then went back inside. I went back across the street, climbed into the backseat of our 1967 Chrysler Newport, and conked out. When I woke up, the sun was just starting to come up. Sober now, I figured I should just go inside and face the music. Face my father. I crept into the house, suddenly very aware of how cold I was after a few hours of sleeping in the freezing car. I heard my dad down the hall, shaving. I walked down toward the bathroom, shaking. The door was open. I poked my head in and said sheepishly, Uh, good morning. He looked at me. Morning, he said with a face full of shaving cream. Then he paused. Hey, kid. Mom said you got drunk last night. Uh, yeah. He looked at himself in the mirror, then turned and looked at me. Guess it had to happen sometime. And that was it. Oh, yes.
A while back, Kim and I went to see Henry Rollins do his spoken word thing over at the Aladdin. Henry who? Spoken what? If you don't know who Henry is by name, you've more than likely seen him before. He used to be the lead singer for the formidable punk band Black Flag way back when. After the band folded, he went on to form Rollins Band. Now he's one of those guys they always interview whenever they do the I Love the 80s series or the 100 Most Metal Moments on VH1. He's a smart, funny guy and usually provides a pretty good soundbite for those kinds of shows. He's also had bit parts in a bunch of movies and has his own show on the independent film channel called The Henry Rollins Show. Henry still plays music, but it seems lately he's been concentrating more on spoken word. Basically, these are shows he's been doing since the early 80s. He goes out with nothing but a mic and starts talking, telling stories about what's going on in his life, what happened on the last tour, strange things that have happened to him while traveling, groupie stories, his political views, whatever's on his mind. These shows usually last about three hours without a break. Yes, a guy standing there spouting off for three hours. Sounds boring, right? It's not. He's quite a captivating character. Very intelligent, very entertaining, rude, hilarious, and intimidating. He's covered with muscle and tattoos. Wild-eyed. He doesn't look like someone you'd really want to monkey around with. He looks like a half-mad Special Forces dude who's been on one mission too many. Something about his eyes. They're like a flashing beware-of-dog sign. Watching that Aladdin show recently, though, I couldn't help but flash back to a night 21 years previous, in 1986. The night that I met Henry. I was living in Southern California. My band, Lost Anthony, was playing the depressingly useless, dead-end L.A. club scene. It's so sad, that scene. It's really hard to be in a band down there. Soul-sucking. There are a million bands playing at any given time there, and every time you want a gig for your band, you have to convince some booking person why your stupid band should play the gig instead of one of the other 999,999. Usually the booking person in question is not there to book music, but to sell beer. So, he or she tends to book the bands that will sell the most beer. That was usually not my band. We were the tortured artiste type of band. We played music, and that was it. We were amusing ourselves, and if anyone else wanted to come along for the ride, fine. We didn't pander. Not because we wouldn't pander. It just never crossed our minds to pander. And even if it had crossed our minds to pander, we wouldn't have known who to pander to. So, we didn't pander. We just played. It never occurred to us that our band should have some kind of look, or a cohesive sound, or a decent press kit. So we languished away under our artist umbrella and had about 11 people who followed the band fanatically. Very similar to now, come to think of it. We had a gig one dreary Wednesday night at a place called Ronnie's. It was out by a rock quarry in a horrible city called Monrovia. Very David Lynch that night. Raining, the sound of pile drivers, broken glass everywhere, wind howling in the night. My band played our hearts out for our 11 patrons, then we broke the gear down and had a beer. I was wandering around this grim place with my beer, California rednecks, beaten up pool tables, neon, nicotine haze, when I came upon the Ronnie's calendar of events for the next month. There were 15 bands I'd never heard of, then in the middle of the month, on a random Thursday, Black Flag. Black Flag was the most notorious band in L.A. in the early 80s, even as late as 1986. Even thinking about booking Black Flag at your club was asking for a full-scale riot. Crank-riddled racist skinheads with bicycle chains hanging out of their back pockets followed these guys around. Their shows were legendary, full of violence and mayhem. But it wasn't the band or the fans who generally caused the problems. It was the cops. 
The cops would often shut the shows down before they'd even start, to try and avoid a potential riot. This would piss the fans off, then the punks would hit the fan and everybody would go berserk. I wasn't into all the punk hysteria related to them. I just loved their music. It hit me in a deep place. It still does. Why, I thought looking at this calendar, in the name of God, was the mighty black flag playing here at this Ronnie's dump? I didn't know, but I intended to get to the bottom of this. Three tickets to Black Flag for Thursday the 16th, I told the bartender, handing him cash. The night of the 16th, I convinced my then-girlfriend Linda and my pal Eric to accompany me to the show. They weren't really my A-list picks, but I couldn't think of anyone else who'd go with me. My friend John, who would have really dug the show, was living in Germany for a year, so I improvised. Linda was into Genesis, like the old stuff with Peter Gabriel, up until the that's-all-illegal-alien phase. Selling this show to her was rough. I felt like Willie Loman. Eric was into Kate Bush and Steely Dan. Punk was really not his cup of tea, but he was open-minded enough to show up, so that was cool. I knew that they were there for me. They were warm bodies, and they would patiently sit with me whilst I rocked to the flag. Their sacrifice was much appreciated. We showed up at Ronnie's that Thursday night, and there were three bands on the bill. Painted Willie, Gone, Black Flag. There were maybe 16 people in the whole place. No one looked particularly punk. I got a sneaky feeling that whoever had promoted this gig was going to be looking for another line of work very soon. About 10 p.m., Painted Willie went on. The flag guys had brought their own PA system into Ronnie's. I remember a giant wall of amplifiers completely blocking out the windows that looked out into the street. It was clearly overkill, and clearly intended. When Painted Willie took the stage, I remember the downbeat of their first song, thinking to myself, Oh my, there's something wrong here. It felt like Mike Tyson was pounding my solar plexus. The bass information was so intense it was like fists hitting my ribcage. My God, I said aloud. I looked at Eric. He was wincing, pointing at his ears. He mouthed something to me like, I can't hear anything! I can't hear anything! It was somewhat scary, that kind of volume, but I loved it. Twenty minutes or so into their set, nature called me, and I went to the head to relieve myself. Painted Willie the band, not me, was so loud that the water in the toilet bowl was rippling. Wow, that was impressive. As I was washing up, I noticed a chalkboard attached to the wall. Presumably, this is where one could write his pithy thoughts instead of taking a sharpie to Ronnie's tile wall. It seemed to work, too, because aside from the stuff written on the chalkboard, there was no graffiti anywhere in the men's room that I could see. Anyway, what really caught my eye was that because of the relentless volume of painted willy, the chalk was dancing back and forth on its aluminum tray. Pogoing, if you will. Amazing, I thought. Gone came on second. They were an instrumental trio. Greg Ginn, who was also the guitar player in Black Flag, was the main guy in Gone. Somewhere between Lou Reed's Metal Machine Music, Ornette Coleman, Sun Ra, and the Ramones was the music of Gone. I was absolutely blown out of the water. I'd never heard or experienced anything like that. I was so involved with what was going on, I sort of forgot about my companions. I looked around for them. There was Linda sitting by herself, looking somewhat irritated. I walked up and asked, What do you think? It's really good, she said with a forced smile. Oh, brother, I gotta get rid of this baggage, I thought to myself. Where's Eric? I said. What? Where's Eric? I screamed over the din. He's out in the car! Linda screamed back. I got a stamp on the back of my wrist and went out to the bleak gravel lot where Linda's brown 65 Volkswagen with the personalized plate 65 Peanut was parked. I was all ready to berate Eric. 
I wanted to tell him what a candy ass he was for sitting out in the car instead of just dealing with the flag and the rock. I got to the bug and peered in the window. There he was, curled up fast asleep in the back seat with his black peacoat over him. He looked so comfy I just didn't have the heart to yell at him. I just went back inside. The first person I saw as I walked back through the door was Henry Rollins. He was about 25 years old at the time, wearing a white sweatshirt. He had long curly hair hanging down past his shoulders. He was up near the band and seemed totally engrossed in the music. He'd shut his eyes for a while, then open them again, then shut them. I thought about walking up and saying something to him, but he didn't seem like the kind of guy you'd want to bother, so I sat back down. After Gone finished, the roadies were moving equipment around. Greg Ginn was putting his guitar away. I walked up to him, stuck my hand out, and said, Hey Greg, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen three people do in my life. He laughed and thanked me. Then he started talking to me, asking questions. Where was I from? What did I do? Etc. And was totally cool. Made me feel like a person rather than some dumb, gushing fan. I talked with him for several minutes, then sensing I might be overstaying my welcome, said thanks and started back to my seat. As I turned to go, there right next to me was Henry. He was doing some stretches against an amp. He pulled off his sweatshirt. His back was covered with a giant evil tattooed sun and the words, Search and Destroy. Knowing what I do now, owning every black flag, Rollins band, and Henry's spoken word CD, what happened next was a bad idea. Yes, I know that now. Don't bother Henry for any reason, especially when he's getting ready to search and destroy the audience, when he's getting in his mental place to launch an assault on people. Don't talk to him when he's in the zone. I know now. I didn't know then. So I walked up to him and extended my hand. Hi, Henry. Sorry to bother you, but I just want to tell you, I fucking love what you guys do. He turned to look at me. He looked right through me with those eyes. Those feral eyes. Spider's eyes. He stared at me a long time. He looked at me like he was going to kill me. It was probably eight full seconds. It felt like eight minutes. Still, I held my hand out. It took everything I had. I felt like such an idiot. Suddenly, he took my hand with both his hands. Well, all right, he said. Thanks. Thank you, I said. I really appreciate that, man, he said. He dropped my hands and walked away. The show was great. By the time Flag started playing, there was about nine of us left watching. It turned out to be one of the very last Black Flag shows ever. So I got to be a teensy little piece of punk history. I take a perverse pleasure in that. I was out running errands this morning, my usual Monday morning routine. I needed to be somewhere by 10.30. I found that I'd finished my last errand and to my surprise it was only 10 a.m. That was good. That meant that not only was I going to be early for my next thing, I was also being very efficient. I liked that and I paused to bask in it. I looked into my rear view, smiled, and winked at myself. You are so efficient, I said to the mayor. I decided that since I'd done things in such an efficient and timely manner, I'd earned a couple of extra moments to stop off somewhere on Division and grab a quick cup of Good Morning America. I stopped at some coffee place, parked and got in line. I stood there, breathing deep, enjoying that earthy coffee smell, knowing in mere moments I'd be caffeinated and ready for my next task. I glanced around at the wide variety of interesting people in the shop. All kinds of different folks. I like that. 
One girl with dreadlocks sat outside playing a little flute. Wow, I thought. I really love living in Portland. What a great place to be yourself. Ah. It was 10.05. Then, whack, it hit me. I'd goofed and I left one thing off my list of errands. I needed to stop at New Seasons and get a few crucial items. Oh boy, now I was really going to cut it close getting to my 10.30. Hmm, I wondered, should I bail out of the coffee line now and jet or take the chance that this line was going to get seriously moving? And in that one moment, everything changed. The easygoing barista guy with the cool designer eyeglass frames now became the slacking four-eyed dolt that was hanging me up. Come on, you pinhead, sometime this year would be nice. All the interesting people in the place suddenly changed too. Now there were just a bunch of stupid hippies who obviously had nothing going on with their lives. I mean, come on, what kind of moronic chick sits in front of a coffee shop all day playing the friggin' flute? Hey, get a damn job, Zamfir, and while you're at it, shave that revolting pit bush before I toss my cookies, will ya? It was now 10-11. I gripped my coffee tight, jumped in the truck, and blasted out onto division. Within a block, traffic slowed down for no apparent reason. My heart started palpitating. I began to sweat. What the fuck is the holdup? I screamed out the window. My eyes were wide. I was breathing little quick breaths like a maniac. About 30 seconds later, we began to inch forward. A little ways up the road, I saw the source of the slowdown. A young mother had just arbitrarily decided to cross the road with her baby carriage. Carriage first. You've seen these half-wit idiot moms. They go off the curb baby first, just barreling out into traffic as if to say, you better slow it down and stop right now because I have a baby here, mister. And no one even yells at him for it. Heck no, everyone just slams on their brakes because it's a baby. A precious baby. Ugh, God, I hate that. Just once I'd like to see a kid go 50 feet in the air, hit a wall, and explode like a rotten melon. Just to see the chump look on the nitwit mom's face as she goes gray with horror, because it's all her fault. But that never happens, does it? Why can't I ever see cool stuff like that? It was now 10:17. I pulled into the New Seasons parking lot. For those of you who don't live near a New Seasons, it's a very nice, well-lit, upscale market, and I'm sure you have one in your town exactly like it, probably called Nature's Bounty, or Whole Earth Garden, or Love's Yum Yum Patch, or something. Ever been in one of those places on, say, a Saturday? You walk in, everyone's mellow, they're giving out free samples of stuff. That's so nice. I like that. Their motto over at New Seasons is, the friendliest store in town. That's wonderful. But anyway, it was 1020. I ran in, wet with sweat, looking insane, and began charging toward the products. Then time suddenly stood still. In front of me, everywhere, there were ninnies, holding lattes, standing dead center in the middle of every aisle I was trying to get through. They stared blankly around, wall-eyed, taking up space. They seemed not to be shopping at all, but just, uh, like, whoa, hanging out at New Seasons. At that point in my addled mind, New Seasons suddenly became this vast repository of brain-dead, insipid dunderheads. I imagine them all holding hands on a tarred tow line in the produce department near the vegetable misters, giggling to themselves when a little got on them. I got some wawa on me, they'd say smiling, a spreading stain down their pant leg. Feel warm on me, I like. But then in the middle of my vision, the hate came. Bunch of soccer mom, capri pant-wearing, fake-racked, Stepford wife, SUV-driving, yuppie scumbags. It was now 10.24. I pay for my stuff and barreled out the door. 
I fired up the jalopy, gunned it, and immediately got behind a woman going 15 miles an hour in a 35 mile per hour zone. I think she was some form of Yoda. She didn't appear tall enough to see over the dash, and she seemed to be looking straight up into the very roof of the car. Oh, man. I first politely tooted on my horn. That got no response. I tooted a little longer, but there's only so much you can do in a Toyota. Those horns just sound lame. Like, meep. I like the old American car horns that sound like a factory steam whistle. So loud they vibrate your molars and rattle your eyeballs around in your skull like dice in a cup. Now two toots and still no response from Miss Molasses. The dash clock clicked over to 1026. And that was it. I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to be late to my thing. The universe was against me, and I should just mellow out and go with it. Fine. I was calming down. Then I noticed the Slowpoke's bumper sticker. The goddess is alive, and magic is afoot. Oh my god, you really need to die, lady. Beep! Move your fucking car, Stevie Nicks, or I'm gonna drive that hobbit mobile of yours into a goddamn telephone pole! I screamed that. Really. And she pulled over. And she looked scared when I passed her, too. That was satisfying. And I got to my appointment at exactly 10.30. Ever efficient. And once again, a real happy guy. <laughs>